So please turn with me to Mark 10, 17 through 31. That is where we will behold and consider the wonders of God and his word this morning. Mark 10, 17 through 31. As you're turning there, I wonder, if you've given thought to this, how do you break an economic system? That is, how does an economy utterly collapse? Well, typically, we think of debt, perhaps. Persistent trade deficits, spending more than is being brought in will ultimately cause the collapse of an economic system. Or perhaps uh, a a natural disaster of famine, something or something else that, that depletes a highly important resource. This could lead to economic collapse, uh, insurmountable national debt. But there are other ways economic systems can break. On, on October 13th, 2023, just this year, a few, month, a few weeks ago, NASA launched its Psyche spacecraft. Have you heard of this mission? It's, it's estimated that by August 2029, this spacecraft will have reached its destination, an asteroid by the same name that's orbiting the sun somewhere out there in between Jupiter and Mars. And why do they want to go to this asteroid? Well, it's, it's unique in that it's composed primarily of metal. And so they want to study it for this unusual uh, trait. In fact, though, the lead scientist says uh, of this mission said that there is such a high metal content on this asteroid that they estimate that the metal could be worth somewhere around 10,000 to 100,000, here's a word I haven't heard before, a number, quadrillion dollars, 10,000 to 100,000 quadrillion dollars. The reality of such a high dollar amount means that the metal on this asteroid is actually worth the entire, worth more than the entire global economy combined. It means that if this metal were on Earth, then the entire global economic system would collapse because all of a sudden the value of what is wealthy is completely changed. So the the point of This illustration is that we ourselves, in our sin, have a flawed, personal, spiritual, economic system and value system that has to be recalibrated based on something of infinitely more wealth than what we put value in, in earthly treasures. So we tend to chase after what allows us to stay in control. We trust in ourselves and that we can gain and what we can bring to the table. But God desires to break our sinful value system, our personal, spiritual, economic system, and show us that instead we need to be like what we saw last week. We need to be childlike in our faith, trusting and treasuring and depending upon God alone, not anything that we can bring to the table or anything within ourselves. And so that's what our passage illustrates today. It shows us specifically that we can often place our trust and our dependence upon earthly treasures, specifically money and wealth. 
but heavenly riches, heavenly treasures, the treasures of salvation, entrance into the kingdom of God, eternal life in God's presence, Jesus, our King, are not temporary. They are eternal. And this heavenly treasure is worth losing everything for in order to inherit it. So this is, in fact, what Jesus has been calling his disciples to do. We've seen over and over in Mark that Jesus is the Son of God, the supreme king of the universe, and he has lowered himself in order to save his people. So that's where the message comes from. Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited Christ, the Son of God. And yet he doesn't save his people by overt power. Rather, he surprisingly serves and suffers in order to save his people. In Mark, we see what we heard read this morning in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. We see Jesus, that though he was rich, he became poor, so that by his poverty, we, his people, might become rich. And Jesus calls us to follow him on this path. The key verse we've been highlighting lately that's been kind of the dividing line in Mark is Mark eight thirty four through 35. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The dis- disciples of Christ cannot take any other path than the one that the Son of God has blazed himself. Losing all for the sake of the kingdom, even his own life. And last week we saw what a true disciple looks like. It looked like a child who trusted completely and only in Jesus, in God. Not anything in themselves or what they could bring to the table. Well, today, as we alluded to in the last sermon, we see the photo negative of that in this rich man. It's, it's a heart-wrenching picture of what those in the kingdom do not look like. Our passage also makes clear it's possible to be so close, to have the right desires, but to still be completely deceived. Our passage this morning is really Mark 8, 34 through 35, playing out in live and living color. It's, it's, it's the, the action narrative of what Jesus was teaching. What does it look like to practically deny self and take up one's cross? Or what does it not look like? What does it not look like to follow Jesus by losing your life in order to gain true life? We see that here. Entering into the kingdom of God, receiving eternal life, salvation looks like having your personal, spiritual, economic value system completely disrupted. You don't venture your capital on earthly treasures. Instead, we're invited to venture our capital on a heavenly treasure. So look with me at our passage, Mark ten seventeen through 31. We will consider this passage in, in two parts. Verses 17 through 22, we see the rich man's quest to gain eternal life. The rich man's quest to gain eternal life in verses 17 through 22. Then in verses 23 through 31, we see the poor man's quest to grant eternal life. The poor man's quest to grant eternal life. So look with me at verses 17 through 22, the rich man's quest to gain eternal life. We'll look at this first half in two general parts. In verse 17, we will first see... 
an authentic desire and a misguided request. An authentic desire and a misguided request in verse 17. Then in verses 18 through 22, we will see a loving corrective that reveals a divided heart. So look with me first at verse 17, authentic desire and a misguided request. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. So it's important to remember where Jesus is and where he's headed at this point in Mark. Jesus is once again in Judea. Judea. They've been traveling around even to Gentile regions, but now back in Judea, setting out on his journey. And where is he going? Well, Mark 10.32, the very next scene will tell us that Jesus is headed toward Jerusalem. Jesus and Mark is now making his way to the cross. This is where everything is headed, and Jesus' recent predictions about his rejection, suffering, death, and resurrection, they are coloring all of this. He's on the journey to the cross, and his predictions are painting everything. We should understand everything in light of the coming cross. That's the destination. And on this journey, a man runs up to Jesus, and he kneels before him. And this is a familiar demeanor and posture. It, Mark highlights this kneeling one other time. Matthew or Luke don't, don't highlight this kneeling, but Mark highlights it for a reason. He's taking us back, causing us to remember what we saw in chapter 1 when, when the leper came and knelt before Jesus, desperate for cleansing. This rich man is, is desperate. And what's he desperate for? He's desperate for eternal life. Now, I've been calling him a rich man. Mark hasn't revealed that to us yet. So, you have, this is going to be a, a climactic thing, but we come in knowing a little bit, right? But this man is desperate, and what is he after? Eternal life. Eternal life here in this scene is synonymous with what Jesus tells the man to lay up for himself, treasure in heaven. It's also synonymous with entrance into the kingdom of God. It's synonymous with salvation. We see see, uh, as as Jesus is interacting with the man and the disciples, they're using all of these words synonymously. Eternal life, salvation, entrance into the kingdom of God, treasure in heaven. So this is a good and right desire that this man is seeking. In fact, throughout this entire scene, Mark will include different elements that lead us to believe that this man is absolutely genuine. He's not trying to test Jesus. He's not coming to him trying to pull the wool over Jesus' eyes. He is earnest. He wants eternal life. How do I get it? However, his question could be slightly misguided, no matter how genuine his desire is. Look at his, Look at what he says. The man says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So three words stand out here for us. Jesus is going to address all of them, one directly and two more indirectly. First, the man calls Jesus good. Now, this might tell us something about the man's heart in line of thinking. Jesus will address that in a moment. We'll look at it. The second, the man asks, what must I do in order to inherit do and inherit eternal life. So we begin to see perhaps some of this man's misguided notions here. Typically, you don't inherit something by doing 
something. Rather, you typically inherit something by being something, or rather, someone in relation to another. A son inherits from his father by virtue of the fact that he is his father's son. He didn't do anything to be the son. The father grants the inheritance because of one reason alone, is his son. Now, to his credit, this isn't completely off the wall. The the man isn't totally misinformed here. The word inherit has all kinds of Old Testament theological freight bound up in it. It it speaks of God's covenant promises. All the promises that God makes to his covenant people, life, this is the inheritance that we see. This is what the man is after. And the promise of the law was, if you do all of the law, you will live. So the man's not totally misinformed. However, the doing in and of itself is, is not what gains the life. It was the heart behind the doing. All of the law is summed up in this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and might. You might say it another way. That is, be a son of God. God even calls Israel his firstborn Son, Jesus fulfilled that perfectly where Israel failed. But, but to be a son of God who embraces him as your father and lives in light of that. And that looks like obedience. So obedience then isn't performative or perfunctory. It's not a checklist to justify yourself, to earn an inheritance. Rather, obedience comes from the heart that loves God and takes hold of his promise to give you an inheritance because you're his son. So obedience comes from loving God and trusting in him and him alone. So yes, there is an element of doing tied to inheritance, but it is a doing that arises from being loved by and loving God. One can do and not inherit anything. But if there is absolutely no doing, then one testifies that they do not recognize God's love and do not love God and are not in relationship with him and thus will not inherit. So I hope we see the connection here. So this man, as Jesus will make clear, appears to be in the camp of of genuinely desiring life, but approaching it unbeknownst to himself with a divided heart that places his trust, security, and love, not in God, who promises, but in his own efforts. Let's see if this is confirmed as the rest of the interaction unfolds. Look at Jesus' loving corrective that reveals a divided heart in verses 18 through 22. A loving corrective that reveals a divided heart. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness and do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. So Jesus gives, as 18 through 20 Jesus gives a two-part response to the man's request. First, Jesus responds to the man's notions of good. And second, 
Jesus responds to the man's request of what he must do. So first, was it wrong for this man to call Jesus good? It's true that Jesus is good. Indeed, we know him to be the only good one. So if it's not wrong, then why is Jesus calling the man out for for calling him good? Well, given given Jesus' response and the fact that he is good, then he he must be revealing something. uh, He must be pointing to something in this man's personal spiritual economy, his value system that believes it's possible to have goodness within one's self. To be able to make and do, to make oneself good. Perhaps then this man believes it's possible to make himself good enough by performance. So Jesus offers this corrective. Jesus is already beginning to disrupt this man's system. Inheriting eternal life is not about your goodness. It's not about my goodness. Inheriting eternal life is about God's goodness. Second, the man responds to Jesus's requ- uh, Jesus responds to the man's request more directly by pointing him to some of the Ten Commandments. You notice something about these commandments. Which ones are they? Well, they're, they're the ones that focus on outward love to neighbor. Why would Jesus choose these five commandments rather than simply saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might, since the whole law and prophets is bound up on this command? Jesus does it because he is probing this man's heart. He is trying to draw out what is in the heart of this man so that he sees the heart of the issue. Notice the man's response in verse 20. And he said to him, teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. Now this, this idea of keeping here is, is the, the, the original word conveys the idea of, of guarding, watching over, protecting This man has sought to be faithful to the law from his youth. I don't think we're meant to see him in the same category as a self-righteous Pharisee who act hypocritically and then use the law keeping to justify themselves. This man perhaps could say with Paul as to righteousness in the law, blameless. It's the type of man we see here. And yet he still seems to recognize that his fidelity to the law is missing something because he comes to Jesus and asks. We have not seen a Pharisee do this, right? So I don't think he's in the same category. But, but perhaps his thinking is still, if I just do one more thing, then I could perhaps be good enough. So he doesn't see himself as justified or good enough yet. But perhaps he thinks there is still a way that he can make himself good enough. He is more desperately sick than he even realizes. And Jesus desires nothing more than to help him. As we've noted, this doing must come from a place of love. If this man's loving his neighbor, as Jesus has pointed out, is devoid of love for God, or if, if, if love for God is secondary or, or mixed and intermingled with other loves, then his love and obedience to, to love neighbor means nothing. And, and perhaps this man, seems, he seems to understand that he's 
still not good enough. The law is meant to reveal sin, but the man seems to continue to look at what he can do for himself rather than recognizing his need for God and God's love for him. So Jesus, again, aims to help him see this. To know that love, look at Jesus' response in verse 21. Here we see life-giving love. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Let's stop right there for a second. This is what paints the entire interaction. Love. Only, Only Mark highlights this. Everything Jesus has said, the way he's been approaching this man, everything Jesus will say, keep that in mind is Jesus speaking the truth in love. Jesus seeks to help this man see that he is deceived. So Jesus will cause this man to have a crisis of conscience. He will drop a bomb on this guy in order to help open his blind eyes because he loves him. And what does Jesus say? So in love, Jesus issues some life-promising commands. The man is after eternal life, and so Jesus says, here are the things you must do. Look at the rest of 21. And Jesus said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. So Jesus answers the man's question directly. The man says, what do I do? And and Jesus says, well, here's what you need to do. This is what you need to do. This is what you're missing. This is the need that you have that you feel you are missing. The man has kept the law, but Jesus fulfills the law. And so he issues five commandments of his own that get at the very heart of what the commandments were trying to are meant to reveal in the first place. Jesus says, go, sell all, give it away to the poor. Come and follow me. Come back and then follow me. So these commands are all meant to reveal one thing. These commands are are meant to reveal this man's God. The man has thought he has kept this law since his youth and and, uh, has done it in a way that will gain him eternal life. But, But here we see that If his heart has not been united to God in love and dependence on God for his promises, then he must be doing it from a place of self-dependence, self-security, self-trust, self-love. And his self-security and self-trust and self-love manifests in a dependence, a trust in, security found in, a love for his earthly riches. But Jesus invites him out of the stranglehold of this deception and says, In love, don't treasure those things, your earthly financial treasures. Trade it all away and you will have what you seek. Trade it all away and you will have eternal life. It's the same call that Jesus gave to his disciples. He said, come and follow. This is the only other person he says this to in Mark. Come and follow me. This is a call to discipleship, to enter into covenant relationship with God through Christ. 
Jesus holds out the promise of heavenly treasure against the man's earthly treasure in order to reveal where this man's true allegiance lies. It's not with God, but with himself and his money. And his response makes this clear in verse 22. Here we see that Jesus' loving corrective made up of his life-giving commands, driven by his life-giving love, reveal this man's divided heart. Says the man, disheartened by the saying, or the word, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The language Mark uses to describe this man's reaction really drives home his vexation, this, this, this uh, disheartening that we read. It, 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 it's used to describe a, a brooding sky darkening for a storm, like a darkness coming over. We see that elsewhere. It's this idea of being shocked and appalled even. That's how this man feels in this moment, completely thunderstruck by what he's heard. And the the man is sorrowful, and and that conveys this idea of being distressed, saddened, perhaps even offended. And he leaves in this state. He doesn't come to Jesus. He doesn't take up the offer of eternal life. And if he's not taking up the offer of eternal life, there's only one other thing he's choosing to take. Trading death. Trading life for death. Now, do we genuinely, genuinely, uh, uh, gen- generally associate love with eliciting such responses? We typically think of, of love drawing in, love giving joy. It does not shock and drive away and offend. But it is clear that this is what love looks like here. This man would have gone his whole life not knowing what it is that is keeping him from eternal life. And Jesus lovingly uncovers it. Lovingly uncovers this man's divided heart. Even though it led to his offense and his sorrow. Mark makes clear what we've been alluding to here as well. Uh, This climactic announcement of sorts. What is it that's keeping this man from taking hold of eternal life? What is it? Why would he turn away? So genuinely desperate. Mark says, for this reason, the man does not go off in this state because he is so unrighteous and hopeless. The man does not go off in this state because he has nothing. The man leaves in this state because he is rich. He has great possessions. This is why he left. This is why he's disheartened. This is why he's appalled, even perhaps offended. He wanted to know how to inherit eternal life, and Jesus told him, choose me over your stuff. And the man could not do it. He's confronted for the first time, perhaps, with the reality that that he loved what he could provide for himself in his life, earthly treasures, more than the prospect of eternal life. He thought he wanted it. He was a rich man on a quest for eternal life, and Jesus revealed to him the way to it. Indeed, this is why Jesus came. Look at part 2, verses 23 through 31. The poor man's quest to give eternal life. 
23 through 31. I want to look at these quickly. First, in verses 23 through 25, we see earthly treasures steal eternal life. Earthly treasures steal eternal life. Second, in verses 26 through 27, we see the living God grants eternal life. And then third, in verses 28 through 31, we see that we taste of the kingdom of God now, and we will feast in the kingdom of God for eternity. So first, verses 23 through 25, earthly treasures steal eternal life. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how difficult it is it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus' love is not done. He turns to his disciples, and, and if you follow him, if you count yourself as a disciple, he might as well be turning to you and me. And he says, and he comments on what we've just witnessed. He says, earthly riches make it difficult, very difficult, to enter the kingdom of God, eternal life, salvation. Does this amaze us as much as it amazes the disciples? Jesus even uses an analogy. He says it's actually easier to take a camel and shove it through the eye of a needle than it is for the rich and a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God, eternal life, salvation. It's impossible. That's the situation. So does it astonish us? Are we left speechless like the disciples, or do we tend to qualify this? I've wondered if my own view on the matter is, is skewed simply given my Western American context. How do we even understand what wealth and riches are? What, what is wealth? What is riches? Well, there's some stats. What is considered rich is relative, right? Some stats. For 2023, the top 10% of earners in the U.S. have a net worth of $3.8 million. Millionaires, top 10% richer than 90% of the population. The top 50% of earners in the U.S. have a net worth of just over $500,000, so half a million in 2022. That was the statistic there. But what if we change the sample size? According to a global wealth report done within the last five years, if you have a net worth of $93,000, $93,000, you are richer than 90% of the global population. If you have a net worth of just $4,000, you are wealthier than half of the people on the planet who are alive today. So rather than giving us reason to be dismissive of what rich is because of its relativity, its relativity should actually impel us to be even more aware of the deception of money and wealth. Jesus does not mince words. Having more money makes entering the kingdom more difficult. That's the opposite message of the prosperity gospel that says if you get in, then you have all of this money. We see this elsewhere in Scripture. Consider 1 Timothy six seventeen through 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides with everything to with richly provides us with everything to enjoy 
They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Alternatively, Scripture tells us that it's actually poverty that should be seen as a potential blessing. James 2.5, listen, my brothers, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Do we think this way? I know I, I don't tend to think this way. It's not my natural bent. So we have to fight for this mindset because everything in our society, in our world, tells us differently. What is it that makes riches, money, wealth, in and of itself, so life-stealing. I think we've seen it in this rich man's interaction with Jesus and Jesus' words to him. Money, riches, earthly treasures, it easily plays off of our sin nature, which is characterized, as we've said, by self-dependence, self-trust, and self-love. Earthly treasure would tempt us to live for this life and not the one to come. The deeper sin issue is, is that of self Security and self-dependence. Money becomes an idol erected to the God of self. And it's only the childlike in faith who come to God empty-handed and trust him and love him completely. This isn't a pay-your-way-in or by-your-money efforts. It's the receiving of an inheritance, resting hope and trust in God alone, not in our Riches are what we can provide for ourselves. There's a story from a commentator I, I read about this. Uh, he said uh, there was this man who was giving a testimony uh, in uh, in church one time about how when he had nothing, he got his first check from work, and he just felt impressed by God to to give all of what he had from that first paycheck to to the church. And so he did, and he's sharing this testimony. He said, since that time, God has just blessed me financially over and over again. And that was his testimony. And he sat back down, and the old old, uh, uh, woman behind him leaned up to him and whispered in his ear, I dare you to do it again. We see the tension there, don't we? How much security are, are we placing in our wealth, money and wealth, deceives. And it would make us just like the rich man, eager for eternal life with God, yet completely on the outside looking in, because it has subtly come in and become an idol of choice for the God of self. So what makes our salvation impossible for us on our own is our utter blindness to our need to be saved. This man didn't even see his need. But thanks be to God, he is the most charitable life giver. Verse 26, and they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. So the disciples are astonished for two reasons. First, in their context, financial blessing is seen as confirmation, as one's good standing before God, much like we can see in our culture today. You have money, you must have great faith. Second, this man's fidelity to the law. This man was not only rich, but he was faithful in keeping the law. How then can he not be saved? How can he not enter the kingdom? 
Because salvation does not depend on our riches or our goodness. It depends on God's riches and his goodness. Salvation is impossible with man, but salvation is possible with God because he would impoverish himself in the incarnation of his son so that you and I could be made rich. The treasure of heaven is Christ. It's like, it's like a treasure that a man finds in a field and he sells everything else he has just to get the field. It's like, it's like a pearl that he finds of such immense value that it changes everything else. Everything that he once valued, he sells just to get the pearl. Completely shifts our value system. We have wrapped our arms like the rich man, around earthly treasures, whether treasures of material, pleasure, control, our own selves, and we have refused to trade these things. This is who we were, holding on to our counterfeit riches. So God looked at our own self-inflicted, disheartened, sorrowful state, and he said, if you will not give up your riches, I will give up mine. For you know by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus is the treasure of heaven. Jesus is eternal life. Jesus is the king of the kingdom, and he came to completely disrupt our spiritual economic system by giving his infinitely valuable life as a ransom for you and me on the cross. Open your eyes and see the treasure of Christ. Venture on him. Venture wholly on him. We're not venture capitalists who speculate when we put our money on Christ. This is a sure investment. Eternal life. We know that salvation, even for the rich man, is not impossible. We can see this in Luke 19, the story of Zacchaeus. We see him... The chief tax collector, a rich man, Jesus declares, salvation has come to this house. What did we see Zacchaeus do? Zacchaeus came to Jesus and, and said, I, I gave half of my wealth to the poor. I, I refunded four times over those I've defrauded. Why did he do this? Not because he was trying to earn eternal life, but because he saw in Jesus something infinitely more valuable than anything he could get his hands on. Salvation. What's impossible with man is possible with God. Zacchaeus was looking to the reward. He was looking to the treasure. Life with Jesus. Look with me at verse 28 through 31. We taste the kingdom of God now and feast in the kingdom of God for eternity. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So for once here, we see Peter and the disciples on the right track. I think it even surprised, surprised him because, because I don't think we should see arrogance here on Peter's part, but it's, it, it, he's merely stating a fact and, and perhaps even... Slightly hesitantly, notice it says he began to say, right? 
Jesus, we left everything to follow you before he can even finish. Jesus takes up what he says and runs with it. He says, yes, you did. You left everything to follow me. And I tell you, nobody who leaves mother or father or brothers or sisters or houses or lands will not receive back a hundredfold in this life. You're not losing anything. You are gaining. And notice that this gaining, we might, we might wonder, where does it come from? How, how do we gain a hundredfold? We see it in the life of the church. You turn from the world, you enter to a kingdom of saints, a family of brothers and sisters. Many of us in here, we have no family in immediate family here in Charlotte. A couple of cousins maybe somewhere in North Carolina. Others of you perhaps don't have family here. Why are we here? Why do we gather together? Because we taste of life in the kingdom now in Christ. We are family. It's a mixed drink, though. It comes with persecutions, but even the persecutions in this life have a note of sweetness to them because they testify that we're truly citizens, not of earth, but of heaven. The early church, the disciples rejoiced when their property was plundered. Why? Because it said to them, you are not of this world, you are of the kingdom. The world may relegate the people of the kingdom to be last now, but in the age to come, they will be first. And this is only possible because our king, as Colossians told us this morning, we heard the firstborn of creation, the head of the body, the church, the firstborn from the dead, the beginning, the preeminent one, the first one, what it literally means, first. He blazed the trail by becoming last. Therefore, he is first, and he sweeps us up into his victory and makes us first with him. One of my favorite things to see in sports is when there's a celebration uh, from winning a championship, right? Uh, you think of perhaps the Super Bowl, and the, the championship-winning quarterback, the, the dad is out there, and what does he usually have in his arms? The camera shows he has his kids, and he's celebrating this Super Bowl with them, and they're having more fun than anybody. But they didn't win the Super Bowl. This is a picture of what Jesus is doing. He has won the victory by becoming last. And he now is first. And he sweeps us up into his arms. And we share in that victory. The last will be first in Christ. So the gospel, this compels us that we see here to gospel application. First, do we treasure? Do we turn to earthly treasures when we are high or when we are low? Do we turn to earthly treasures, material things, to make us feel better or to add to our pleasure? We must all examine ourselves to take stock and see whether or not we are treasuring the things of earth over the things of heaven. And one way we can see this is, is a way that Cody so helpfully always illustrates it for us. We have to understand everything that we're given is from God who owns all things. It's a grant, right? So then, how are we stewarding faithfully the grant that God has given us? How are we charitably and generously giving in the same way that the God of all charity gave himself to us? We have to take stock. 
Do we turn to earthly treasures? It's so deceptive that we have to take stock of this. Second, we recognize that our desire for earthly treasures, our love for earthly treasures, is actually symptomatic of a deeper-seated sin, and that is love for ourselves. We erect the idol of money and material to worship the God of self. So when we see where we're treasuring the things of earth, let that have us look even deeper to see how it is that we are serving ourselves. And sometimes we need help seeing this. So the third application point is we recognize that love will point these things out. We see Jesus point this out to the man in love and is loving and Christ-like when a brother or sister helps us see where we're treasuring things other than God. And it is faithful and loving to receive such correction. So love, Christ-like love, will help us see where we are treasuring things over Christ. Because we're all tempted to replace the treasure of heaven with earthly treasures. We must always nourish our faith and remind ourselves who we are in Christ, that we taste of the kingdom now. And we will have, as Jesus said in the age to come, eternal life. So God has given us means to nourish our faith, to remind us of the treasure of Christ, that Jesus is the treasure of heaven, Jesus is eternal life. And when we hang our hope on this, that he became poor so that we could become rich, we will have the kingdom in full. So we taste the kingdom now, and in this table, we have a tangible means by which we taste. And that nourishes our faith. Christ shares the table with us spiritually. He is here serving us and saying, taste, this is the eternal life that I bought for you. And so when we follow Jesus, even when it means losing earthly treasures, we know that we gain true life. And we know that in tasting from this table, we're getting a foretaste of eternal life in the kingdom to come. So as we come to this table here in a moment, let it do that. That is what God gave it to us for. That is why Christ gave it to us, so that we can taste of the kingdom now. Grow in our faith and see that in the body and blood of Christ, we have been made rich. And we'll taste it now, but we'll feast of it in the kingdom of God for eternity. So would you pray with me as we get ready to come to the table?